Uh, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible with me and, and turn to the first epistle of Peter. First uh, Peter, uh, as John mentioned uh, in his introduction in the announcements, our intention is to sequentially go verse by verse uh, through this epistle, uh, praying that the Spirit of God would illuminate its truth uh, to our minds and to all of our hearts. Uh, and so I, of course, have the great privilege and, and blessing to begin this study tonight. Uh, tonight I will be focusing uh, on the first five verses. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And uh, I, I would like to ask you to stand with me uh, for the reading of the word of our Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to pray with me. Father God, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, it is not our own glory that we seek. It is not our own praise that we seek. But Father, our desire, the heart of every true believer in this room tonight, is that your name would be hallowed and glorified. Father, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our minds, open up our hearts, illuminate your word of truth to all of us. I pray that you would be glorified. I, I pray that you would be honored in the preaching and proclamation of your word tonight, dear God. I pray that your people, I pray that the saints would be edified. I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this truth into our hearts, that this would not be some baseless stale, intellectual exercise as we study your word. But Father God, I pray that we would be renewed, that our actions, that the lives that we live when we leave here tonight would, would demonstrate that we have taken these truths to heart. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. God. God has shown and has manifested his great and majestic glory in the saving of a peculiar people. Now, I like that word, peculiar. You know, usually when we think of something that is peculiar, we think of something that is odd or strange. And, and the word definitely has that meaning to it. But it is also a word that at the same time as it means could mean odd or strange, and at the same time means particular, special, unique. You see, what I'm saying is that God has saved and is continuing to save a peculiar people, a people that is not of this world, a people that is distinct from this world, that may seem strange or odd at times, and that it is his particular, special people. They belong to him. They are unique in that sense. He has his particular people, whom he has foreknown before the foundations of the world, whom he has saved and is saving through Jesus Christ. And, and as I've said, this is a people that can seem strange, it can seem odd at times to so many, because the Christian people are not living for this world, as so many do, but the Christian people are living for eternity. So by way of introduction, since the intention of the preachers is to go through this, this whole book, and since we are beginning that expositional expedi expedition tonight, it will be most helpful to you as listeners if, if you understand 
somewhat of the context, somewhat of the main theme or purpose of this epistle. Why has Peter written these words? Now, this book is a letter written by the Apostle Peter as he identifies himself clearly in verse 1, who was an eyewitness to and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And he is writing to a wide range of Christians living in places that are under Roman rule. Uh, Peter, we're talking about someone who has walked with Jesus, who has been taught by Jesus, saw how Jesus lived, saw all of the hardship and persecution that Jesus endured during his life. And now he is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing the words contained in this epistle, which is the word of God. God is speaking to us through Peter's writings. These are not the opinions of man. These are not the philosophies of some great intellectual or thinker. This is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it is believed that Peter wrote this epistle in the early to mid-60s A.D. Now, at this point in in history, the Christian church is, is very young, but already is a faith that is under persecution. Now, the Bible says that the natural mind does not understand or comprehend or discern the things of the Spirit of God. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So therefore, as the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out into the pagan world, an unbelieving world, it is met with much hostility and vitriol, just as it is today. Now, this is... The basis, this concept that the Christian faith is one that is under persecution, that Christian life is a life of suffering, this is going to be the basis for much of what Peter is writing about, the slander and opposition that the new Christians are being met with. And so it forms the overarching theme or purpose for much of Peter's writing here is the concept of Christian suffering, specifically how are Christians to live with and respond to suffering. The Bible nowhere promises that the Christian life is an easy life. The Apostle Paul says that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus, our Lord, famously says in Luke chapter 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus admonishes those who would follow him to, quote, count the cost. Now, why would Jesus tell us to count the cost of discipleship unless it was true that the Christian life would be marked with suffering, that there would be something to lose by following Jesus? And so Peter, he writes his letter with the knowledge of all of this, And he sees that the Christians are indeed suffering, that Christian people of his day and of our day are are being slandered, persecuted. Now, Peter's intention in writing this letter is to give these people a a message of hope in the midst of their suffering. He, He tells us how God is actually using our suffering for our good. Now, this is wonderful, and I think that This is a message which we especially need to be reminded of today. There are so many quote-unquote Christian preachers who will walk around and and, and talk about how God just wants you to be happy or successful, and God has this wonderful plan for your life, and and, and they paint the Christian faith as this quaint little thing to be added onto your life, uh, that that God is going to remove all the difficulties from your life. He's going to get you that promotion. You're going to get approved for that loan and all these different things. But, beloved, that is not the Christian message. The Christian message is not something to add to your life as if it's some little compartment, it's some slice of your existence that you put over here to make you feel better when you need it. No, the Christian message is to become your life. So that when hard times, when trials and struggles come, which they will come, we are promised that they will come, we can give glory to God for how he is using them. And we can rejoice that despite our temporary circumstances, God has in store for us grace and blessings unspeakable in eternity. And the way things look right now, uh, unless God does a great and mighty work in this nation, which he is able to do, by the way, I don't want to paint this picture where God can't do something like that. He is completely able to do if he so chooses. 
the suffering that we endure as Christians in this country are only going to increase. And so this is a message that we need to hear. And I am so thankful that we have the opportunity to go through this book together as a church. And I pray that by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that we would be ministered to and edified by the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. And so tonight, I want to, as I have already articulated, want to focus your attention upon the first five verses here in chapter 1. Now, obviously, this is Peter's introduction to his letter. These verses are in no way something to be passed over. Peter is not making small talk here. The weight and gravity of the various subjects mentioned in his introduction are the types of things people will write entire books about. And yet, these are the very first things Peter writes about. Now, as I said, I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 through 5, but really to understand why verses 1 through 5 are being written, I first need to call your attention to verse 6. So in verse 6, Peter writes, in this, now in this refers obviously to verses 1 through 5, which is a very doctrinal, very theological section. So in this, In this theology that I have written to you, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, Peter's purpose for writing about what he does in verses 1 through 5 is to give the Christian a cause to rejoice, to give them hope so that we can endure these various trials. And so that is why it is so important to look over what he is writing to us about. That as hardships come our way, we are to look at these truths and find in them reason to have joy and give glory to God, despite our present sufferings. And so it is very important that what I am talking about tonight would not merely be some intellectual exercise, uh, but that really these truths would seep down into our hearts that they would give marrow to our bones, that they would give spirit to our souls. And so with that being said, uh, verse 1, we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now notice the very first line there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, The word apostle in the Greek just literally means messenger. But when Peter says an apostle of Jesus Christ, in that context, it means a little more than just messenger, I have a message for you. No, there's a special significance to it. What he is saying is that he has been commissioned by and is operating and speaking under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What Peter is making clear is that his words in this letter are not his own. These are not Peter's opinions. These are not Peter's meanderings. Peter did not write this letter just to share some thoughts with us. No, Peter is operating under apostolic authority as one who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The words he writes are the authoritative word of God, meaning what is written in this letter is binding on all of our lives. It cannot be changed. Whatever is uh, written in the book of 1 Peter is something which we must submit our lives to, no matter what our feelings or opinions are. What is written in 1 Peter is true. It is the truth. It is the word of Christ. It is the word of God. And so Peter establishes that the content of his epistle is of apostolic authority, And then he goes on to address his epistle towards the, quote, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And now this is just our introductory verse to the epistle, but contained in these simple words is great spiritual meaning. Now, now Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia... These are just various places between the Mediterranean and Black Seas, far north of the nation of Israel. And why that is significant is because it is commonly understood that Peter's writing to a mostly Gentile audience, meaning 
uh, an audience of people who have become converted to Christ who were not of national or ethnic Jewish descent. And so here is, with that being said, what is so interesting and so fascinating about the phrase elect exiles of the dispersion. Now the word dispersion comes from the Greek diaspora, which referred to Jewish people who lived estranged from or outside their homeland of Israel. People who are in the dispersion are those who are far from home. And when Peter refers to them as elect exiles, this also has some similar meaning. Now, uh, a prominent event which takes place in our Old Testament is the Babylonian exile in which most of the people of Judah lived in captivity in Babylon. And now this was a time of great despair when the people of Israel were and felt estranged from their homeland. Psalm 137 verse 4 says, uh, in this context says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So once again, what I'm trying to communicate is we have the idea of being far, far from home. Now the word elect that's attached there, which makes it read elect exiles, is reminiscent of the fact that those people who are in view here were in, uh, the people who were in exile in Babylon, for instance, were God's chosen people. So Peter, right out of the gate, is using this very Jewish language to address his audience. But as I said earlier, if, if you remember, Peter is writing to a mostly non-Jewish audience, a Gentile audience. And, and we know that he is because some of the content of his letter, if you go through it, would make little to no sense if he was writing to a Jewish audience. So Peter, he's not writing to the historical nation of Israel. He is writing to the new covenant church of Jesus Christ, of which all Christians belong. So why is, why is he doing this? Why is he using this very, as I've said, Jewish language? Well, the answer is found in that word, elect. That just as the Jews in the Old Testament times were God's chosen people, the people to whom Peter is writing his letter are God's chosen people. And so you see, God's chosen people are elect exiles in this world, in, our, in, the, in their lives here on earth. There, there's great spiritual application that he is making here. This theme is found in other places in Peter's letter where he writes to the Christian as one who is a sojourner, an exile in this world. Uh, this is actually where the pilgrims got the name pilgrim uh, from. I believe in the Geneva Bible it uses the word pilgrim. And, and so uh, we have to understand this, that the Christian is, is not at home in this life here on earth. We are in this world, but we are not of the world. The Christian is on a pilgrimage all throughout his life. As the old song says, Brother Guy and I were talking about a few weeks ago, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. Now, Peter, he's going to apply this in other ways throughout his letter, but right now he is simply addressing who the people to whom he is writing are, that they are elect exiles. And the question that he answers in verse 2 is the question, why are they this way? What has caused these people to be elect exiles? And so verse 2, Peter writes, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why is the Christian in elect exile? Well, what you notice in this verse is that all three members of the Trinity are named. God the Father, the Spirit, Jesus Christ, all named in this verse. And this verse lists the various roles that they play. So if you ask the question, well, why is the Christian in elect exile? Because of the Holy Trinity. Because of the work of of God. The first thing we read in verse 2 is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The words according to at the beginning of verse 2, they correspond to and they modify the phrase elect 
exiles. Now, it's, it's very important that we get this right and that we do not confuse what is the plain and clear teaching of Scripture on this point. You, you see, what is in view in this passage of, of Holy Scripture, God's Word written under apostolic authority, written by the commission and authority of Jesus Christ, is the divine sovereignty of God. That all things which take place in this world and in history and in our lives do so because of and within what we call the decree of God. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10, he says, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now this is found all throughout scripture. And there are those who would say that when the Bible speaks of things that pertain to election or predestination, when it comes to salvation, who will and who won't be saved, that what this means is something like God looks down through the corridors of time, he sees who will accept him and who won't, and that God is, is not actually sovereign in this regard, but he actually leaves salvation up to man. This could not be further from the truth. Such a thing is found nowhere in the Bible. For starters, the word foreknowledge here does not refer to mere intellectual knowledge of facts, but as Pastor Cliff made this uh, same application this morning in his sermon, what is in view is a strong, personal, and intimate knowledge. And it's made in reference to people, to God's elect exiles. You see, there are people who I know of, and there are people who I know. The same word used for foreknowledge here is also used in verse 20 when speaking about Jesus, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In addition to this, the Greek word that is used here carries with it the meaning predetermination. You see, when the Bible speaks of God's foreknowledge, it's not talking about God predicting future events. It is talking about God determining future events. Remember, the word elect means that there's a choice that's been made, and it's God's choice that's been made. All that to say, those who are the elect exiles are not so because of any condition within them, not because of any righteousness within them, not because of any merit within them. Not because they chose to follow Christ, therefore God foreknew what they would do and then elected them. That's not what the text says. That's not what my Bible says. They are the elect exiles because God, before they were ever born, determined that they would be. In other words, those who are elect exiles did not determine what God would foreknow, but what God foreknew determined what would be, what would be in their lives. And so what's so incredibly fascinating about this verse is that all three members of the Trinity are identified with uh, and how they are involved in our salvation. Because salvation is not a work we do, it is a work that God does. So Peter writes, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, usually when we talk about sanctification, we refer to the progressive growth in holiness uh, every Christian has, our process of killing the sin in our lives and and becoming more like Jesus. But here in this passage, uh, Peter, he's not talking about the effects of our conversion, but about the cause of our conversion. Here, in the sanctification of the Spirit, refers to the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, where we are born again, where our hearts are opened, where the veil is removed from our eyes that we might be effectually called to come into faith. Once again, this shows us that salvation is not a thing that we do, it is not a thing that we earn, but it is a work that God does. And so Peter continues... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now here is discussed the Son's, the Son of God's role in our salvation. God the Son. We have discussed the Father, the Holy Spirit, and now we are to discuss Jesus Christ. 
Now, just as when we think of sanctification, we usually think about work that we do, so too when we see that Peter says, for obedience to Jesus Christ, we may think that Peter is talking about us obeying the commands and statutes of Jesus. But you see, when Peter pairs this with, and for sprinkling with his blood, again, it makes more sense that what he is talking about is the effects of our salvation, or is not the effects of our salvation, but the cause of our salvation. You see, there's something called the obedience of faith. Paul mentions this in in, uh, more than one place in the book of Romans, and in the context of those passages, such as Romans 1, if you want to look them up for yourself, he is clearly talking about conversion and salvation. So it is my conviction that Peter is using that same vernacular here. Now, the only reason that obedience of faith directed towards Jesus Christ can have any saving work is because of the next thing that this verse says, and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, his great role in our salvation was carried out and accomplished on the cross. That because you and I have sinned and God so desired to save sinners, Jesus Christ hung on a cross to die that whoever had faith in him, whoever has faith in his work on that cross would thereby be washed in his blood, that we would be seen as blameless in God's sight, forgiven of our sins, and blessed with his great graces and mercies. Not because we deserve it, not because of any condition within us, not because of our own righteousness, but because and only because God is that gracious. Once again, big theme here in this passage. Salvation is not a work we do. It is a work God does. And here in, in 1, Peter verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we see how all three members of the most holy and the most divine trinity are at play in our salvation, that there is a unified effort amongst them to bring about our redemption, God the Father's election, God the Son's substitutionary death on the cross, and the Holy Spirit's personal application of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says at the end of verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you which is just a standard yet warm greeting that he makes here, which just reminds us, this is just Peter's introduction to his letter. <laughs> this, there, this is, you know, there are some who, who would have listened to what I've said so far tonight and, and say, Logan, that's, that's, that's pretty deep. That's some <laughs> deep stuff. And some people might get upset, and are you sure that you want to talk about that on the very first Sunday night? This is how Peter starts his letter. This is how Peter wanted to begin with his audience. This is how he wanted to engage them. Not to cause a a theological debate. Not for philosophers to, to stroke their beards. But to simply remind his readers, average, ordinary Christians, of the spiritual blessing and amazing work of God that has been done for us. He says to the elect exiles, who are God's people, who are in a land that is far from their home, he, uh, who, all those who have been drawn by God to follow Jesus Christ, that we are a chosen people, that we did not save ourselves, but that God in his mercy has saved us so that we would give all the glory to him and strive to serve and honor him with all of our might throughout our lives. And he continues with the same theme here in verse 3. He says, Blessed Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now now look at the first part of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I love that the ESV puts an exclamation point there because when you read these words you see how the Apostle Peter's heart and, and his love for God just shines forth off the pages. It's just, just oozing with praise, just oozing with doxology. It's like I, I'm standing here over 2,000 years later in another country, and I can still hear Peter's excitement. I can still hear his affection towards God that is shining through in what he is writing. 
When I look at this verse, I don't see a man who viewed his doctrine or his theology as a dry, boring, stale, intellectual, philosophical exercise. No, no. All that deep, profound stuff about God's election and God's foreknowledge and the work of the Holy Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, Peter looks at all that and he sees it and he knows it and the Holy Spirit is revealing all this to him and he rejoices in it. It it puts a smile on his face. It makes his heart sing and, and cry out to heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we must first talk about that phrase, he has caused us to be born again. Now the phrase born again is probably very familiar to you if you're a Christian, and perhaps even if you are not a Christian, you may have picked up on it somewhere. Now, the, the immediate passage that this brings to mind is John chapter 3, where our Lord Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says that unless a man is born again, he will neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. And this is very important. And I tell you today that if you hear my voice because of this, because of the fact that without having been born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God, I say you must be born again. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to be born again? Well, being born again refers to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit by which he gives the Christian new life. Peter alludes to this earlier when talking about being sanctified in the Spirit, that there's a, a work of the Holy Spirit uh, that he does, uh, that our hearts and our eyes are open to see and receive the blessings of God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is where the Christian is made a new creature. He or she is no longer the same person, but they've been born anew. Not only to see and to believe in Jesus, but to serve and obey him and to love him and to have fellowship with him. Christ says that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. To live a life for the glory of Jesus Christ. And unless you've been given this new life, you will not see the kingdom of God nor enter it. But look at Peter's emphasis here. He says, according to his great mercy, referring to God the Father, he has caused us to be born again. You see, although I've just spoken that being born again is of utmost importance, Peter's emphasis in this passage, uh, at least in this place, is, is not so much on necessarily what it means to be born again, but his emphasis is on the cause or the source of our being born again. That, and and I probably sound like a broken record by now, but this is the point, that being born again is not something we did, it's not something we do, but our being born again was caused by God. Meaning, had it not been for God's initial work in our lives, we never would have been born again. The common illustration you'll hear preachers say, and I know Brother John loves this one, is you made no contribution to your first birth. What contribution do you think you make to your second birth? And so why? Why did God cause us to be born again? Because what Peter has said so far is that believers are elected by God according to his foreknowledge. But now the objection to that is, well, you're just saying that God arbitrarily and and meaninglessly chooses people uh, uh, for no uh, great reason or great purpose. But God forbid that we ever think that that's what God does, that he just arbitrarily for no reason makes decisions. God chooses us to be born again according to his great mercy. It's his mercy first and foremost because we, being guilty sinners, do not deserve it. And, and, and also that, hopefully you are noticing the theme here, we do not cause it. Salvation is not a work we do. It is a work that God does. And so having established this, what Peter does next is he tells us some of the blessings or gifts that come to us by our being born again. Now the first blessing that he mentions is that our being born again is to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living 
hope. Such a lovely pair of words, is it not? Living hope. Now, now what is this living hope? Is this hope for better jobs, hope for more money, hope for a pain-free, easy life? Well, considering that almost this entire letter is written to help us understand that, that we are to face and how to face and respond during times of suffering, the answer to that is no. The living hope that the Apostle Peter speaks of is, is not material, is not financial blessings, but it is so much greater, so much more wonderful than anything that you can imagine. Yet it is a living hope, meaning it is a hope that gives you joy and comfort and peace right now. Not, not later, but right now at this very moment, if by God's grace you do share in it. This, as will become more clear in verse 4, is our eternal blessings found in God. Eternal life, specifically eternal life spent in the presence and blessings of God, where we are free from sin, we are free from pain, we are free from death, and we get to spend eternity with God who loves us. You know, so often when we use the word blessings, when we think of blessings, we think about material blessings, but, but it seems to me that the Bible is way more concerned with our spiritual blessings than our material. And, uh, and I just wish that this gave us more joy. I, I wish that we love these things more than we do. Peter says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You realize that the resurrection of Christ from the dead serves as confirmation of all that he taught, everything he ever said, everything he ever promised. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of Christ, says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all of his preaching and all of our faith is in vain. And he uses this to demonstrate the reality of the future resurrection of the dead, where all people who have ever lived will be given resurrected physical bodies, uh, either will be raised either unto life or unto death, heaven, hell. And since Peter here is speaking to believers, the resurrection unto life is what he is referring to when he speaks of a living hope. And to some, this might not seem as glorious, this might not seem as exciting as more money or other physical things, that's because their priorities are wrong, skewed, and ungodly. To the Christian, to the person who has been born again by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is our great hope. Amen. Remember what I said at the beginning. Peter, he, he tells us this doctrine. He, he gives us this theology, not just to, to write down some notes and to fill our minds with this stuff, no, but what he says in verse 6, he says, in this, in this theology, in this doctrine, in your eternal spiritual blessings that God has promised you, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Remember, what does verse 1 say? We are elect exiles. This world is not our home. We are not to be storing up treasures here, uh, but we are to be storing up treasures in heaven. And so while we go through various trials in our lives and we suffer and we experience hardship and we experience pain and we experience loss, through it all we cling on to the living hope that is found in the resurrection of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has died for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead, just as we die to our sin and will be raised unto life to spend eternity with him. What could be more precious? What could be more amazing than that? To spend eternity with Jesus Christ, who loves you. I tell you, this is a living hope. You can experience the joy. You can experience the comfort. You can experience the peace of this right now. 
Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice the personal nature of this. Kept in heaven for you. For you. This is your gift. This is your treasure. This is your inheritance. This is your hope. Christian, please listen to me. This belongs to you. At the beginning of verse 4, the inheritance refers to what I was just talking about, our eternal spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, confirmed by his resurrection to be our living hope. But look at these amazing and wonderful uh, things Peter says about this inheritance. He gives three adjectives. He says that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So let's, let's look at these adjectives he uses there. The first, imperishable. The inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ is not subject to decay. It will not die, it will not be destroyed, but it will last forever. This building, my clothes, the pieces of paper that I have up here with me, the pews you're sitting in, the cars that you drove here in, all the money in your bank account, it will all perish. It will be destroyed. So I exhort you again with the words of Jesus Christ. Do not store for yourselves treasures down here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus is imperishable. Now the next adjective Peter uses here is the word undefiled. Now what undefiled means is, is really something that only a believer can, can appreciate. It's really something that only one who's been born again can comprehend why it would be attractive to anyone at all. If, if you are sitting here and you're listening to my voice and you remain unconverted, if, if you have not yet, by the grace of God, given your life uh, in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then what I'm about to say to you will, will mean nothing to you. But if you are a genuine Christian, if indeed you have been born again, then perhaps this of the three adjectives Peter uses here will be the most exciting, the most lovely to you. You see, what undefiled means is that our inheritance in heaven is free from, unstained by sin. Sin is so evil. Sin is so abhorrent. The Christian hates sin because sin is anything which goes against the holy commandments of God, who is holy. The Christian, because they have born again, hates sin just as God hates sin. The Christian, even though they still will sin in this life here on earth, when they do sin, they are so broken by it and so shattered by it, it is unlike any other experience on the planet because it's the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart. Even though Christians still struggle with sin, they long to be free from its presence. And so the Apostle Peter here gives us much hope when he says that our inheritance in Christ Jesus is undefiled. It is unstained by sin. Now, the third adjective Peter uses is unfading. Now, what unfading means is that unlike any earthly delight you have ever known, your eternal heavenly inheritance, your spiritual blessings in Christ will never lose its glory, will never lose its beauty. Um, you know, sometimes people think that they wouldn't want to live forever because I, I've heard this, that, you know, it would just get boring after a while or, or something like that. Now, usually these, these people are, are not Christians. They have no capacity to discern and understand and appreciate spiritual things because they're naturally minded persons, First uh, Corinthians. And, and so they are, you know, usually thinking like, well, you, you can only eat so much food, listen to so much music, see certain things, experience so much bodily pleasures and these different things, or whatever it is until, I mean, it's going to get old after a while, and, and, and it's going to get boring, which, 
which is true because those things are, are physical and finite. But what we must understand is that eternal life is not just this life here on earth, but infinite. What eternal life is, is eternity spent within eternal God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Understanding that we will be spending eternity with God and in his blessings, if indeed we have been redeemed by him, you would have to be very foolish to think that your small finite mind would ever grow tired, ever grow weary, ever grow bored of the vast and unsearchable wonders of the glorious God of heaven, of the glorious divine and holy trinity. And so with all this in mind, Peter says that this, your inheritance, is kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The who at the beginning of verse 5 is the same you at the end of verse 4. Peter is still addressing believers, Christians, the elect exiles, God's chosen people who are living in a land which is not their home. Of these people, all believers, Peter, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, says, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the reality that our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time is just indicative of the fact that while we still receive God's blessings in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives right now, this side of heaven, the fullness of our salvation, the totality of all that entails, such as our resurrection bodies uh, and being free from the presence of sin, these are things that are yet to be revealed. This is why Peter can use the phrase living hope because it is something that we are hoping for as it has not yet been manifested to us. But we experience and are satisfied in the joy of it right now. But what's so wonderful and so comforting here that Peter tells us here in verse 5 is that our salvation, our inheritance, our living hope, we... God's elect exiles, all genuine believers in Jesus Christ, are being guarded by God's power through faith. Now, to help explain this, listen to the Apostle Paul's words here in Ephesians and speaking on this exact same subject. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, he writes, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Of all the people whom God predestined to save according to his foreknowledge, as verse 2 says, all of God's people, all who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees that we will receive our inheritance. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit is what Peter refers to when he says in verse 5 that we are being guarded by God's power. You see, in order to fulfill that he who began a good work in you will bring it out to the day of completion, in order to make sure that no believer falls away from faith, that none of us lose our salvation, God, the Holy Spirit, seals, guards, and protects us from anything that would cause us to fall away. He guarantees that we do not apostatize. He guarantees that we do not forsake our faith, but he makes sure that we endure to the end. This is a most comforting and most lovely truth. Now, if it seems as though this has been a very deep message tonight, this is Peter's introduction to his letter. This is the stuff he says right away at the beginning 
so that his readers can have their hearts pointed towards heaven and their minds set upon the things of God so that they can be prepared to receive and hear all that Peter has to say in the rest of his letter. It, it, you know, you look through so many of the New Testament books, Book of Romans, Book of Ephesians, First Peter here, you notice that the author will often, the first section of the book will be doctrinal, theological. He's, he's just telling you indicative statements. He's just telling you facts, information about God. He's giving you doctrine. He's giving you theology. And then the last part of the book is, well, how are we to live this out? And there will be exhortations about living godly, living in obedience, and all these different things. The reason that so many of our New Testament books are, are uh, arranged like that is because what we do with our theology and our doctrine is we don't, some of you have been taking notes tonight, we don't just write this down and, and catalog it far away. No, the doctrine, the theology, who God is, what God has done for you, that, that Christ has shown his obedience by shedding his lifeblood on the cross for you, this is all to pour into and, and work in how you live your day-to-day life. The, the attitude that you have when you drive to work in the morning, the way that you talk to your spouse, the, the philosophy that you utilize in raising your kids, or you know, doing random acts of kindness, all these different things, they are influenced by your understanding of who God is and what God has done for you. This doctrine, this theology, serves as the grounds for everything Peter has to say in the rest of his letter. When he talks about our suffering for our faith and striving to live obedient to God, we are only about to do and endure these things because of what is being described in verses 1 through 5. Christian, you are in elect exile. You have been chosen by God to be a pilgrim in this life to remain faithful to him in this wicked and sinful world, to abstain from worldly passions, not to be discouraged by your present trials, because God has prepared for you a glorious inheritance of unspeakable proportions, and he is guarding you by his Holy Spirit to guarantee that you will inherit his blessings. With all that being said, I would like to once again close us all in a word of prayer. Father God, Once again, we we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we we are such a privileged people. We who who have been so wicked, who have sinned so often, who have transgressed against you so often, dear Lord. How, How much of our time has been spent in rebellion against you, God? How often have we blasphemed and mocked your statutes by our conduct, dear Lord? And yet, Father, you who has perfect knowledge of us and all things, you have looked upon sinners like us, God, and you, according to your abundant and great mercy, according to your grace, to demonstrate that to us, you have looked upon a peculiar people who have sinned and you have chosen to redeem them. You, you have saved us, dear God, not because of anything we've ever done, not because of any of our own righteousness, not because of any merit within us, solely based upon your glory, your grace, and your mercy, dear Lord. Father, apply this truth to us with the Holy Spirit. Help us to see this. Help us to realize this. Help us to live our lives in light of this. Help us to live for your glory in light of all this. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I just um, want to thank everyone who was able to find it within your schedule to make it out tonight. Uh, It's been a great uh, encouragement to me to to see everyone listening and following along. I'm sure that Brother John is going to have a wonderful and insightful message for us next Sunday night, and I pray that you would be able to return. Thanks again.